0: Hi, this is Edwin Crozier again from the Franklin Church of Christ. The lesson you're about to hear comes from one of our second Sunday night of the month services where we dealt with questions that have been submitted by members and guests of the congregation. We're going to be looking at three questions in this lesson, so open your Bibles and let's study God's Word together. It is the second Sunday night of the month and as has become our custom on that night, we're going to be dealing with questions and answer questions that have been submitted by the congregation, and answers that I hope will be beneficial to you. We're going to deal with three questions tonight, and they're all on various topics. But all three of them have one thing in common, and that is I don't know their answer. Not not 100%. Uh, these, these are questions that I, I I can't answer 100% because I'm not sure that the scripture has given us a full understanding of them. But I do want to share with you some Bible passages. That help me as far as where I am and what I think about these issues. And it'll just be something that you can take for your further study and thought as you continue on studying the Bible. Again, they're all three and different issues. The very first question, will we know each other in heaven as we know each other today? There are all kinds of questions that go along with this. As that song just said, sometimes we dream together about what it's going to be like in heaven. If there's one thing in the Bible that most amazes me, I think it's perhaps the fact that God really doesn't tell us very much about what heaven is going to be like. That's the, that's the goal that we're all shooting for and He's told us that it's going to be grand and awesome and we don't want to miss it. But He really hasn't told us all that much about it and so we have all kinds of questions that go along with this. Will we know each other? If we know each other, will we know the folks that aren't there? And if we know the folks that aren't there, we'll be sad. But wait a minute, I thought there was no tears in heaven. And all those kind of questions. And so I recognize that there are just a host of questions. And I do not have all the answers to all those questions. And I I don't intend to answer all those questions. And just to be honest with you, while we're going to talk about this for a few moments tonight, I really don't intend, in our second Sunday night services, to answer all the possible questions that could stem from this question. I just want to share with you a, a passage that, that leans me in one direction regarding this issue and talk with you about it. Will we know each other in heaven? Will we maintain our identities and be able to recognize and know each other in heaven? I tend to believe that we will. And there's one event in the Gospels that leads me to believe that, and I I recognize before I tell you, it's not an absolutely certain thing. I'm not about to show you a Bible passage that just nails it down and says, oh, that's it, it's over, that answers the question. But it is the, the, the event that leads me to believe that we will retain our identities in eternity, and we will know each other, and in fact, that we'll know the folks that we don't know now. And that is the Mount of Transfiguration. Take a look in Mark chapter 9, one of the accounts of the Mount of Transfiguration. In Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2, the Bible there says, "...six days later Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, and His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no longer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus." Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to answer, for they became terrified. And of course, we know what happens. The cloud comes over and says, this is my son, listen to him. And we know what's happening behind this Mount of Transfiguration. We understand that this is a an issue of recognizing that we're not under the law and the prophets anymore, that Jesus has come and superseded the law and the prophets. But one of the things that amazes me about this story is that Peter looks up on that mountain and he sees these two men standing next to Jesus and talking to him, Uh, just as much as I'm seeing Don and, and Henry here. Now, if he had seen James and John up there, clothed in white, talking to Jesus, that wouldn't have been too shocking, would it? If he had said, hey, I know those guys, that's James and John, would that surprise us at all? But Moses and Elijah had been dead for hundreds, thousands of years. And Peter looked up and he knew who they were. That one's Moses. That one's Elijah. And I think we should build a tabernacle for all three of you. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And that just that just blows my mind. Here are guys who have been dead for hundreds of years. Peter had never met them. Didn't have any pictures of them. No Polaroids back then. And yet, Peter knew exactly who they were. I can only guess that there was something miraculous that took place there. But what I learned from that is that Moses and Elijah were dead and yet they were still Moses and Elijah, weren't they? Moses and Elijah had gone into the afterlife and yet Peter was given the ability to recognize exactly who they were. And because of that, I believe that when we get to heaven, we will retain our identities just as Moses and Elijah were still who they were after they died, we will still be who we are after we're dead. I'll still be Edwin in eternity. And I know someone will say, oh, but don't you think Moses and Elijah are special cases? No, I believe they're saved by the grace of Jesus just like you and me. They're not so important that they get some special treatment. I mean, that's the whole point of grace. We're all on an even playing field. And so I believe because of that we will retain our identities and we will recognize one another. Now, I know that leads to a whole host of other questions that, I can tell you my opinions, but I don't know the answers to them. But that hopefully is a passage that you can study and help you as you think about that. But let me tell you this. While I am not absolutely certain exactly what heaven is going to be like, and while I have a lot of questions about heaven and what eternity there is going to be, there is at least one thing that I am absolutely certain of. And that is that heaven is going to be unbelievable, it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be a place that we want to be. And I am absolutely certain that no matter what we have to put up with here on earth as we are traveling to that home in heaven, it will be worth it once we get there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says, in Romans 8 and verse 18, Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As he's talking about what's going to happen in the end. For the anxious longing, verse 19, of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now." What we recognize here is that Paul's saying we're looking forward to that time when all of this order of things is eradicated and we go on to heaven and all the things that we have to put up with here, it'll be worth it. There are a lot of things I'm not absolutely certain about regarding heaven, but one thing I am absolutely certain about is I want to go there. Can anybody agree with me on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we move from heaven... And we're going to go about as far opposite of that subject as we possibly can. The second question is, is hell going to be literal darkness, fire and brimstone, or are those metaphors? Is that just God demonstrating to us how painful and and what torment it's going to be like in eternity? We have passages like Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11, as John is depicting a scene of judgment regarding the church victorious over its enemies at Rome. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And we look over in verse 8 of chapter 21, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Here in this picture of judgment, the church victorious over God's enemies, we see what happens to the enemies. They end up going into a lake of fire that burns forever. Hell. We have other passages. Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, verse 43. In Mark chapter 9, it says in verse 43, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame Excuse me. than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Unquenchable fire. John the Baptist, when he came into the world preaching, in Matthew chapter 3, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, he talked about the baptism of fire, and in context we recognize that's talking about the judgment that comes on people who don't listen. As for me, Matthew 3 and verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He'll baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he'll thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he'll gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. And just one more we'll take a look at. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. A parable of judgment in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. As he talks about that one servant who was not a good steward, who buried his talent in the ground, and Did not use it to make a return for the Lord. In verse 30 of Matthew 25, He said, Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness, fire, brimstone, smoke, those of course are our pictures of what hell is going to be like. And those are our pictures because that's what the Bible says. Now, are those pictures literal? Or are those pictures metaphors? We recognize that the Scripture uses figures of speech and a metaphor is the idea of claiming that one thing is another thing in order to make a comparison or to demonstrate. Well, once again, I don't, I don't know everything about hell. And, and one of the surprising things in the Scriptures here, again, the other possibility for our eternal destiny. And the reality is, God just hasn't really told us very much about it. But I tend to believe that these are metaphors to describe how the torment that we're going to be going through for eternity. And let me show you a passage that leads me to believe that. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, another parable of judgment, Jesus says, and He'll also say to those on His left, these are the goats on the left, "...depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels." Hell, the lake of fire, the eternal unquenchable fire was originally and primarily prepared for the devil, for Satan. Satan is a spiritual being. Again, I don't understand everything about being a spiritual being, but I have the idea that spiritual beings are not affected by physical things like heat and cold. And therefore, as I take a look at hell, I recognize that it's a place that causes torment for spiritual beings beings like Satan and not going to be a literal lake of fire in that sense. The second thing I notice about it is that it's an eternal fire. If we're going to talk about literal fire, the fact is there's no possible literal fire that goes eternally. It will eventually burn up its fuel and be done. But here's the eternal fire. It's some type of miraculous or spiritual torment that is taking place. As I consider that issue of the eternal fire and the fact that we will be in it eternally, that leads me to believe that, if we're not servants of God, we, those who don't follow God, will be in it eternally. It leads me to believe that they who are there are not physical beings, but just like those who are on God's side will be changed because flesh and blood cannot inherit heaven, there is going to be a change for those who are lost. And they are going to be spiritual creatures in a spiritual place, just like along with Satan, being tormented for eternity. Because if they were physical creatures that could be affected by physical fire, they would be burned up. I mean, I recognize perhaps God is, is going to do something miraculous in that regard and uh, keep them physical creatures and keep it little fire. I recognize that's a possibility, but I just, I just tend to believe that's not the case. Those who die and end up in hell are going to be spiritual creatures enduring a a spiritual torment. Now, of course, I realize, having said that, that somebody's going to get upset because I know there's a whole lot of people that are saying that there's no such thing as hell anymore and suddenly they hear me say that I think this language is figurative and metaphor and because people today, you know, we're we're not very much into figurative things. We hear somebody say figurative and we think that means not real. Alright? So I'm just going to tell you now, when I say that I think this language is figurative, I'm not saying I think hell is not real. That's not it at all. I think it's very much a real place. I think it is very much a real punishment. And one of the things we need to remember, if we'll go back, for those of you who are part of our Bible class on how to study the Bible, and then also some of the lessons we had about figurative language, we'll remember that the purpose of figurative language is not to water down the message. The purpose of figurative language is to heighten the message. And so, as God presents these images, these metaphors of what the torment of hell is going to be like, when I say that I think they're metaphors, I'm not trying to say, oh, really, you know what, if you're lost and you go to hell, it's not a big deal. Because those are just metaphors. What those metaphors are saying is, look, in physical, as far as the spiritual thing, you can't understand really what the torment is going to be like spiritually, so I've got to put it for you in physical terms. And here's what the torment is going to be like spiritually. It is going to be like being burned at the stake for eternity. But never dying and never being let go. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul there talked about the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints. While the saints are glorified in his presence, And they see His glory, a glory that's not worthy to be compared with anything that will endure here. Those who have not known God and have not obeyed His gospel are going to be cast away into outer darkness into eternal destruction. And the torment on a spiritual level, the the closest we can get to envisioning it is the idea of jumping into a fire and just staying there and never dying, just enduring that pain forever. So, as I said with heaven, there may be a lot of things that I'm not absolutely certain about, but I am absolutely, absolutely certain about one thing. I want to go to heaven. With hell, there are a lot of things I'm not absolutely certain about, but there's one thing I am absolutely certain about, and that is I don't want to go to hell. Can I get an name with Thank you. I already got one. See, I'm so used to having to ask. Yeah. I mean, can we agree that that's not what we want to do? And, of course, aren't we thankful that Jesus died so that we don't have to, because that's what we all deserve. And uh, what a what a torment that would be. Now we've been we've studied heaven, we've looked at hell. Now let's go somewhere in between. Uh, We're just going to ask a question about a Bible passage. What does it mean in First Corinthians chapter six, verse two through three, when it says that we will judge angels? First Corinthians chapter six, verses two and three. First Corinthians chapter six. Verses 2 through 3. And I was so glad that this question was asked. Because down, in, down at our house, we've been with the folks who, members here who live in Spring Hill and Thompson Station, we started a little Bible study that we've been having every Friday night. We're we'll taking a little break now since the fall focus and just going through the New Testament. And one of the things every week that we talk about is do you have any questions about, this, about what you read? And my question about this passage was, what on earth does it mean that we're going to judge angels? And we got to talk about it and studied it. And it was the very next Sunday. I mean, the two days after we had talked about this, this question is asked of me. And and I just said, Oh, I'm so glad you asked it because now I think I know the answer. Uh, Now, I may not be absolutely 100% certain, but there's a Bible passage that I think helps with this. Now, is it possible that what this passage means when it says, beginning in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we'll judge angels how much more the matters of this life? Perhaps. Perhaps there is some way in which God is going to have faithful Christians directly involved in casting the lot against angels, against folks in the world. But passages like Romans chapter 2 and verse 16 cause me to believe that's just not so. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul talked about the day when, according to his gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. God is the judge, and we're not. And that judgment occurs through Jesus Christ based upon God's gospel, not, not based upon us. How then can that passage say that we judge angels or we'll judge the world? Well, I believe there's a Bible passage that helps us understand this. Look at Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. Excuse me, verse 41 and 42. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41 and 42, the scribes and Pharisees had asked for a sign. Jesus has said to him, you're not going to get a sign except for the sign of Jonah, as he was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41 of Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh, just having trouble tonight, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now does this passage point out to us that the men of Nineveh are going to get to stand up and and the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, are going to get to stand up in the end of time and sit on a jury board with God as the chief judge? And be able to cast their lot and they'll go back to the chambers and they'll discuss and they'll talk about whether or not the Pharisees ought to go to heaven or hell. I don't think so. That's not the point at all. The point is, as Jesus is pointing out, is look, here were some people who when someone less than the Son of God came to them, they repented. When someone not as wise as the Son of God came into the earth, they traveled land and sea to be able to meet them and hear their wisdom, their actions, their life, because of what they did, they will stand up and their actions will be held against you. The point being that Pharisees, you have no excuse. Here were folks that didn't even have what you had and they repented. How much more scribes and Pharisees should you repent at the preaching of the Son of God as He comes to the earth as you see the sacrifice and what is going to come from that? they're going to stand up and judge. Not that they're going to be actively involved in striking the gavel and bringing condemnation, but their lives and their actions are a testimony against the lives and actions of the Pharisees. I believe that when we come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that it's in that same sense that we stand up and judge those who don't accept. Our lives, as we have looked at the evidence and lived by faith, our lives and our actions are a testimony against those who had the same thing that we had but rejected it. And regarding the angels who had more than we had but rejected it. And because we have been wise enough to look at the evidence, to study it, accept it, and live based upon it. In that judgment, our lives will be a testimony against those who have rejected. And in that sense, we judge the world and we even judge the angels as a testimony against them. Now, we have to test that within the context here. How does that fit in what Paul is talking about? Because with Paul in this context, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's actually talking about taking your brethren to law. He's saying, "Why, if you have a problem with your brother, why would you ever take them and go before this worldly court? And So let's step back for a second and see if this interpretation actually fits within the context. I believe it does. Because what is Paul's point? Paul's point is, you're going to go to people who have not even been wise enough to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe that they are wise enough to deliberate matters between brothers and Christ. These are people who have not even been wise enough. We're going to stand up. Our lives are going to be a testimony against their foolishness, against their folly, against their lack of wisdom because they have not accepted the Gospel based upon the evidence as you have. Why on earth, Paul says, would you ever be go, go before that person in all of their folly to determine matters between brothers and sisters? in Christ. Go before somebody who is wise enough to accept the gospel. And find someone there. Because they will be the ones that are wise enough to judge and rule on matters between brethren. Or better yet, he says, why not just not worry about it? Just go ahead and accept the wrong to your brother or sister's benefit. But his point within the context is, these folks haven't even been wise enough to accept the gospel. Why would you go submit to their wisdom on earthly matters if they can't be wise in, in important matters? So I believe in that sense. We will judge angels, we will judge the world. Our lives as we live faithfully based upon the evidence and the work that God has done will be a testimony against them when they have not followed what God has said and submitted to Him. As is always the case, and of course I just admitted up front, I know that I don't know everything. I don't know all the answers to all the Bible questions, but I hope that these passages and some of the things we've looked at have been beneficial to you if you've had questions. I think one of the great things about having the question and answer tonight is that if one person will actually submit the question, there's probably been a dozen who thought about it that didn't submit it. And so I hope these have been helpful to you. If you think for some reason that I've missed it on anything, please feel free. Let's get together and talk about it. I don't think that you have to agree with me 100%, but I don't want you going away calling me names and talking about me behind my back. I want you to get together with me and let's study the Bible, because I do believe we need to agree with God. And we can do that by studying with one another and opening His scripture and learning what He has said. I hope that that lesson was beneficial to you as we looked at three questions that members of the congregation had asked about heaven, hell, and judgment. If you have any questions, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359 or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps someone has given you this lesson on CD or on tape. If that's the case, let me invite you to go to that website that we just mentioned, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com We have numerous lessons there that you are free to download to use in any way you see fit to glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.